time will not be of any help to anyone. Father, we've come here today wanting to be changed. We've come here today wanting to be affected by your truth. And so we pray that you would do that work now. Give all of us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that would receive your truth and love it and rejoice over it. Father, we're desperate for your help. And at the same time, we know that you're faithful to give help. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, I think if you were to ask the average person in the American church, what does it mean to walk by the Spirit, to keep in step with the Holy Spirit, you would get a wide variety of answers. And many of those answers, while they might be somewhat entertaining, would be at the same time heartbreaking. Because the confusion would be evident. The evangelical church has a tendency to emphasize the subjective experience of the Christian life over the objective realities of Christ in the gospel. And the evangelical church has a tendency to be obsessed with the mystical over and against the clear, even tangible teaching of God's Word. And so... In our context, in the American church of our day, we have turned walking by the Spirit, which could also just be called the Christian life. I mean, the Christian life is walking by the Spirit, because there's no other way to walk if you're a believer. We have turned walking by the Spirit into something that is incredibly complicated rather than simple. Now, don't misunderstand that word simple. To say that the Christian life or walking by the Spirit is on the one hand simple is not to say that it is not incredibly deep. Of course it is. Incredibly deep. We can't fathom how deep. We can't plumb those depths. And let's be real from the jump. Let's make sure we're understanding this. The Christian life, walking by the Spirit, while it might be simple, it is supernatural. You can't do it on your own. I can't either. We will do it by the power of God's Spirit, in God's Spirit, as we trust God's Son, or we won't do it at all. Not only have we made walking by the Spirit complicated rather than simple in our context, we have made it subjective rather than being grounded in the objective, as I've already mentioned, and we have also made it mystical rather than clear. Mystical rather than, as I already mentioned, maybe even visible or tangible. And that is not to deny the supernatural. We're going to be thinking about some of those things today. As was somewhat humorously mentioned, we are now finding ourselves back in a book of the Bible, which makes me very happy. Uh, I trust the Lord uses the topical series in the life of our church, and I love to exposit Scripture. And I know that's what you look for and want as well for your regular diet, our regular diet died on a Sunday morning. And so the last time that we were in the book of Galatians, that was August the 12th, some five, six weeks ago. We were considering that day together the internal war of the Christian life, that war that takes place between God's Spirit in us, the regenerate part of us, and also the indwelling sin that remains in us. We thought about that conflict that is now ours as believers. We thought about in a wonderful, hope-giving way, how the Holy Spirit of God will win that war in the end. 
He will transform us and change us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. We will ultimately be finally sanctified. Praise God. We thought about the works of the flesh, which Paul made clear are obvious. And then we also thought about the fruit of the Spirit. Things against which there is no law. They are clearly good. And they are the work of the Spirit of God in and through us. And so today, as we return to Paul's letter to the Galatian churches, we'll continue to look at Paul's exhortations to the Galatian Christians as it pertains to walking by the Spirit. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, open them up to Galatians chapter 5. We will be considering today Galatians 5.25 through chapter 6 and verse 5. When I begin to read in just a moment, I will begin reading in verse 16 of Galatians chapter 5 for context. I want to say this from the outset. I said this last time, the, the most recent sermon on August the 12th from Galatians. Walking by the Spirit, walking in the Spirit is a massive topic. It's a massive thing that I can't possibly speak about in an exhaustive way today. So I'm confident that there are wonderful things about walking in the Spirit that I will not really even be able to give much attention to today. If you have questions about that, talk to me after the service. So now that you've had time to open your Bibles or turn them on to Galatians 5.25, we will begin reading the Word of God in Galatians 5.16. This is the Word of the Lord. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Or your translation might say, keep in step with the Spirit. It's the same thing. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word today and every day. So I have four points for our consideration as it pertains to walking by the Spirit. Four points for our consideration as it pertains to walking by the Spirit or keeping in step with the Spirit, however you want to phrase it. So the first point, not a great heading, admittedly, but that's okay. We trust the material in said heading will be profitable. We're going to think about walking by the Spirit in a general overarching way, point one. A general overarching perspective on walking by 
the Spirit. What does it entail? What does it include? Again, disclaimer, not an exhaustive list. These are just some of the things that can be said. First, we would want to begin by saying that walking by the Spirit is essentially synonymous with union with Christ by faith. Union with Christ by faith. As we thought about last time, you can put your eyes on verse 18 of Galatians chapter 5. If you are led by the Spirit, if you're walking by the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Paul says the same thing in Romans 6.14 about union with Christ. If you are in Christ, if you have been united to Christ by faith, you are not under the law. To be united to Christ is to be led by the Spirit. To be led by the Spirit is to be united to Christ by faith. Along with that union with Christ, we can't talk about that without talking about abiding in Christ. John chapter 15, one of our pastor's favorite chapter in the entire Bible. John chapter 15 is a wonderful chapter because in that chapter, Christ is exhorting His disciples, remain in Me, abide in Me. What does that mean? Certainly, it means what we would call faith. It would mean rely upon Me, trust in Me, rest in Me, remain in Me. Apart from Me, you can do nothing good. So if we're not abiding in, trusting in, relying in, resting in Christ, having faith, trusting Him, then we're not being led by the Spirit. We're not, being, we're not being keeping in step with the Spirit, or however we want to say it. It's just not possible. The Spirit, remember too, friends, in thinking about the theological theme, this is a quick aside this week, we were contemplating it, and we said, you know, we don't want to say we gather this morning to worship the Holy Spirit who does something. Why is that? Because we would understand the Holy Spirit of God would be offended by that. Because the Holy Spirit always points to Christ. And the Holy Spirit always points through Christ to the Father. To glorify the Father and the Son. The Spirit of God does not seek His own glory as the third person of the Godhead. And so, it's important that we would see that the Spirit of God, walking in step with Him, will always be pointing us to reliance upon Jesus Christ. Always. Moving on though. Walking in step with the Spirit, walking by the Spirit, would certainly include striving and praying to align our lives with the Word of God that the Holy Spirit inspired. Let me say that again. Walking by the Spirit would mean, would include striving and praying to align our lives with the Word of God that the Holy Spirit inspired. This basically means that God has given us His Word, His revealed will, and so we strive to keep His commands. You want to walk by the Spirit? Keep God's commands. It means we strive to heed His warnings. You want to walk by the Spirit? Heed the warnings of God in Scripture. It means, to walk by the Spirit means that we trust God's promises. You want to walk by the Spirit? Trust the promises of God in Scripture. Very simple. We live our lives based upon the Word of God given to us, inspired by the Spirit of God. We seek to obey His commands, heed His warnings, and trust His promises. In addition, we could say that an important tangible piece, so here's where we get very practical, very real, very feet on the ground, alongside obeying God's commands, heeding His warnings, trusting His promises, a tangible piece of walking by the Spirit is to apply the ordinary means that God has given us for spiritual growth. What would those be? Those would be, first of all, the Word of God, which we're already considering. 
It would also be the sacraments of the Lord's Supper and baptism that God has given us in His Word. It would be the church. We partake of these things, in particular Word and sacrament, in this context of a local church where the Word is rightly preached, the sacraments are rightly administered. This is a means that the Lord uses to, to grow us in the faith, to keep us in the faith, to grow us spiritually. So if we're going to walk by the Spirit, we're deceiving ourselves if we're not applying those things, if we're not a part of a church where the Word is preached and the sacraments are administered. But other means that God gives us are prayer. Certainly, that's been implied in everything I've been saying. We pray and strive to do these things. Prayer is a means that God has given whereby we would walk in His Spirit. We are able to communicate with Him, with the true living God of the universe. We're able to pray for His grace that we might live unto Him. We are to pray for grace that we might not sin. We are to pray for God's help in all things. And, in addition to prayer, God has also, also given us song. I trust that many times when we gather and we sing, you're affected. I am by the things that we sing. We learn truth through song. Our hearts are stirred by song. And it's even a wonderful tool to, to use in our homes, in our daily lives. Song is a wonderful, verse is a wonderful gift from God. And it is a means that He has given for our good. So in addition to all of those things, union with Christ, abiding in Christ, striving and praying to align our lives with God's Word, applying ordinary means, and sort of a banner over all of this, walking by the Spirit, is living a life of faith and reliance upon God and His grace. Living a life of faith and reliance upon God and His grace. So that kind of posture, friends, the heart that knows the heart and mind that knows how much we need God, how much we need His grace for anything good to happen, how desperately we need Christ, His righteousness, His perfect life counted to me, His atoning death counted to me, so that I might be free from the penalty of the law. The more mindful we are of those things and the more reliant we are upon the Lord and His grace, that will result in all kinds of good in your life. You think about, hey, well, I want to be a person of prayer. we got to start with that piece. Do you understand how desperately you need grace? Do you understand how desperately you need Christ? Because if you understand how needy you are, you'll be a person who prays. Right? We trust a sovereign God who gives grace because He's gracious and He loves us. And we pray to Him because we know we need that. Living that life of faith and reliance upon God will mean not only that you pray, it will mean that you attend church. Honestly, this is not self-serving and this is not legalistic. You will attend church because you understand how desperately you need this. How much you need your heart and your mind recalibrated every week by the Word of God, by prayer, by song, by sacrament. You won't neglect. We won't neglect the assembling of ourselves together. If we live a life of faith and reliance upon God and His grace, we will strive to live according to God's Word. Because we believe Him. We believe that He's right about everything. We don't trust our own emotions. We don't trust our own desires. We don't trust our own reason. We trust God. And we seek to align our reason and our thoughts and our feelings and our desires with God's truth. That's a life of faith. 
As we've thought about so many times, this is the furthest thing from willpower religion. This is not white-knuckling Christianity. It's not what we're doing. Faith is what's required to do things that you don't feel like doing. Faith is what's required to do things that, hey, I don't even you know, know that I want to do this right now, but I trust God. I believe Him, and so I will do this. That's not your willpower. That's the Spirit of God working in you to trust the Lord, even when your thoughts and your emotions, your feelings are out of step. Living a life of faith and reliance upon God and His grace will result in us fighting with all of our might against sin. Again, because we believe God. We believe that sin is real and that it's wrong and that it's terrible and that it brings nothing but wreckage and ruin and we fight against it. We believe that sin robs God of glory and we want to honor Him and so we fight against it. It's a life of faith and trust and reliance upon God in His grace. But there's one last thing, especially in light of our passage today, that I want us to consider in this first point on walking by the Spirit. And that is this, that walking by the Spirit is fundamentally relational. Walking by the Spirit is fundamentally relational. And by that I mean, walking by the Spirit is inextricably linked to relationships with our brothers and sisters in the faith. Walking by the Spirit is inextricably linked to relationships with our brothers and sisters in the faith. It's particularly going to play itself out that way. It doesn't tend to play itself out walking by the Spirit in isolation, with rare exception. Paul first brings up walking by the Spirit in verse 16 of Galatians 5, and he's just been writing about the freedom that we have in Christ and what that means for our relationships. He's told us in verse 13 that we're to use our freedom in Christ to serve one another in love. He's told us in verse 14 that we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. He's told us in verse 15 that we're not walking by the, that not walking by the Spirit excuse me, will result in biting, devouring, and destroying one another. And then he goes on to talk about walking by the Spirit in this very relational context of the local church. The works of the flesh, in verses 19 through 21 of chapter 5, while all being sins against God ultimately, play themselves out relationally. You see that. Look at the list. They involve other people and oftentimes directly wound others. The fruit of the Spirit, likewise, in verses 22 and 23, has everything to do with how we relate to other people. Love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control have everything to do with how we relate to brothers and sisters in the faith. And in our text today, Paul writes in verse 25, you can put your eyes there. If we live by the Spirit, which we do, let us also walk by or keep in step with the Spirit. But where does he go next in verse 26? You can put your eyes there with me. In verse 26, he says, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. He immediately goes to how we relate to one another. How we relate to one another in terms of brotherly and sisterly relationships in the context of a local church. How do we relate? That's where he goes. Walking by the Spirit will play itself out and flesh itself out in relationship. Paul tells us that we are not to be conceited, meaning we're not to be arrogant or proud or self-righteous or defensive. 
He tells us we're not to provoke one another, which would certainly mean that we would be kind and gentle and loving and thoughtful. He tells us not to envy one another, which would mean that we're joyful. It would mean that we genuinely rejoice with one another. And it would certainly mean that we are not coveting what our neighbor has. Whether that's a possession, a spouse, a job, a position, whatever. But Paul continues on, friends, in this very relational vein. I want you to kind of ignore the chapter division that is in your Bible. It's in mine too, obviously. That chapter 5-6 chapter division is just unhelpful because it's all part of one thought. Chapter 6 and verse 1 is not the beginning of a new section so much as it is a continuation of Paul's argument. So we're going to move right on to verse 1 of chapter 6 as we consider point number 2 as it pertains to walking by the Spirit. And point number 2 is this. With, we're going to consider walking by the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit, with respect to dealing with people ensnared in sin. Point 2. Walking by the Spirit, with respect to dealing with people ensnared in sin. Put your eyes on verse 1 of chapter 6. Brothers, or brothers and sisters... If anyone is caught in any transgression, you, are, you who are spiritual, excuse me, should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So how do we deal with people who are caught in sin? Literally, that word is like to be captured, to be ensnared by it. How do we deal with those people? We restore them, we seek to restore them with a spirit of gentleness. So to walk by the Spirit with respect to a sinner caught in sin would be to seek restoration with a spirit of gentleness. And notice that gentleness is in no way in conflict with identifying and correcting sin. Right? That's important. Gentleness is in no way in conflict with identifying and correcting sin. In order to talk about restoring a sinner, it's clear that his or her sin was identified, his or her sin was called out, and his or her sin was corrected. Else, or else there would be no restoration. Right? Restoration requires those things. So this is important for us as we think about walking by the Spirit, being a Spirit-filled church even. Whenever a sinner is repentant, and that's important, when a sinner is repentant, there is remorse over his or her sin. Like genuinely, I'm grieved by the fact that I'm sinning. Then our postures toward that person should be one of gentleness. It should be. Sometimes, I'm not saying we do this at CBC, but I think in our current moment in the church, even in the last few decades, we can act like we're not really taking sin seriously unless we're always dropping the hammer on the sinner. Like if we are not wielding the club and dropping that hammer on the sinner, then we're not taking sin seriously. It's just not true, biblically. Sin can be identified, called out and corrected in gentleness. And it should be according to Scripture. Of course, there are times for warnings. I've said that a number of times. There are times for strong language. There is time for that kind of jarring posture to be used, and that's when we're dealing with unrepentant sin. That's when we're dealing with sinners who don't want to call sin, sin. It's a denial of reality, etc. Then we jar, and we say, wake up. Maybe that woke somebody up this morning. I don't know. Let's move on. We also, you see Paul says the second sentence of verse 1. He says, not only are we to seek to restore people in a spirit of gentleness, we are to keep watch on ourselves lest we too be tempted. 
and you could almost fill in the words, lest we too be tempted and fall into the same sin. Right? So let's put those things together. Spirit of gentleness, seeking restoration, spirit of gentleness, and watching ourselves lest we fall. That means that we should be gentle, obviously. We should be charitable, gracious, compassionate. It means we also should be humble, realizing that it's only by the grace of God, we'll think about this more in a minute, it's only by the grace of God that we're not ensnared in the same sin. We should be self-aware, realizing that we very well could find ourselves there. Lest we ever think that somehow we're above, oh, that kind of sin is terrible, I would never do that. Take heed lest you fall. We should also be patient. This is hard. We're generally very impatient people. Our culture doesn't help us. Instant gratification and all that business, but we tend to be impatient. We tend to be impatient with respect to sinners. I'm standing here, I'm guilty as charged, right? We can be frustrated with the sin of our brothers and sisters. Like, come on! Like, snap out of it! Your sin is driving me crazy and it's hurting me and stop! That we can so easily have that posture. But then, in addition to being all of those things that I just described, we should not be, on the flip side, harsh. We should not be abrasive in the ways that we go about correcting sin. We talked about this, thought about this recently, even in the marriage series. The reason why we are to speak the truth in love is because when we speak the truth in a way that's not loving, it ceases to be ultimately true. And what I mean by that is not that the objective truth changed, but that you have now usurped the agenda of God and put your own agenda in its place. And we have now taken the truth, so to speak, and manipulated it and twisted it for our own ends. That's what happens when we speak the truth in an abrasive, abusive fashion. So we ought not to do that. We ought not to be self-righteous or judgmental. Again, thinking, man, I'm so much better than that. I would never go there. My sin is not as bad as that. Or whatever we do, we do it all the time. Self-righteousness is an epidemic amongst fallen men. We should not be proud or condescending in the way that we seek to restore a sinner. And as I've already said, we should not be impatient or frustrated. It's clear that we need grace for that. It's clear that we will not have that posture amongst one another, amongst ourselves, apart from the Spirit of God doing that in us. But this is part of what it means to walk by the Spirit in community. I think that you probably see this, but I just want to reiterate and help us continue to make connections in God's Word that all of these things we're considering right now are all connected to a proper biblical understanding of, one, the internal war, right? The believers struggle with sin. And it's also connected to our desperate need for God's grace. So if we have a proper biblical perspective on the believer's struggle with sin and our desperate need for God's grace, that will be helpful to us in restoring people in a spirit of gentleness. It's amazing how God's Word hangs together. The high-level truths inform everything underneath them. 
Believers will struggle with sin. We've thought about this so much in the last year or so of our church's life. Believers, because we're born again, the regenerate part of us does not want to sin. We find ourselves doing things that spiritually we don't want to do. We find ourselves not doing things that spiritually we want to do, which leads us to cry out with the Apostle Paul, wretched man, wretched woman that I am, who will rescue me from this? Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. When we have those perspectives, realizing that nobody wants to be out of the entanglement with sin more than the sinner who's entangled, when we have that posture amongst ourselves, then compassion and charity can be a reality. Self-righteousness and pride are destroyed because we realize that we're all debtors to grace and mercy. We're saved by grace and I don't know if you thought about it this way, but you are sanctified by grace. What I mean by that is not that you don't do anything, but your doing and your willing and your working is all a result of God working and willing in and through you. If God is not working in and through you, you will not be sanctified because you can't do it. That doesn't mean be apathetic. Don't hear me say, well, just sit and coast. No. Pray. For grace. Strive after obedience to God's commands. Strive after heeding God's warnings. Strive after trusting and resting in God's promises in Christ. Fight sin and do all of that knowing that you are reliant completely upon the power of God's Spirit through you, lest we ever be confused. I mean, when you read your Bible, for example, I mean, when you read your Bible, it's I'm not trying to be rigidly dogmatic, but we ought to go to God in simple prayer every time we open this book. Say, God, just help me as I read your word. Because if I come to this book, no problem with the book, but there's a problem with me and I need your help. That's the kind of posture we're talking about. I'm acting. I'm working harder than any, Paul says, right? In 1 Corinthians 15, 10. Worked harder than any of the other apostles, but it was not I who did it. It was God's grace in me. That's what we're talking about. Were it not for the grace of God, this should be our posture. Were it not for the grace of God, not only would I still be dead in my trespasses and sins, I would be ensnared in the same sin as my brother or sister who I am aiming to restore. We've got to humbly own that. It's a game changer, right? When we own that. It's cool and it's, it's all kinds of just good and joy producing to understand that we all are trusting in Christ. We're pointing one another to Jesus. And now we're locking arms as fellow strugglers to help each other in the fight. It's what I need. It's what I want. By God's grace, we're seeing it happen at CBC. And that is to His praise and to His glory, not ours. It's just a personal thought of mine. I want to be very clear. I'm just giving you some sort of behind-the-curtain access into my mind for a moment. might be scary to some. I don't know. This stuff that we're talking about right now, in terms of our posture and restoring sinners, and even the stuff that we're talking about with respect to sanctification and growth in the faith and all those things, I think that what we've been describing is often missing in our current church context in the States. In the West. I think it can be, to use, use the phrase, I think it can be a hole 
in our thinking about sanctification, these things that we've been talking about. Because as I've reflected on it, I've reflected on it more this week in preparation for this sermon. It seems to me, biblically, that sanctification and growth in holiness should produce more charity and more compassion towards struggling sinners, not less. It's ironic that sometimes the people most obsessed with sanctification are the ones most prone to bludgeon struggling sinners to death. That should not happen. I'm not saying that I'm innocent of that or that any of you are. I'm not saying that we've got this figured out. But that's an indictment on us. It seems to me biblically also that sanctification and growth in personal holiness should produce more awareness of our own weakness and more awareness of our need for grace, not less. The more you grow in the faith and the more you're sanctified, the more you realize how desperately you need the grace of God. You thought you needed it when you were converted. Follow Jesus for 10 or 20 years and you will know that you need it. I'm going to rein myself in a little bit. I'd like to move us on now to point number three. That was a very kind of drop you off the edge of a cliff transition. Sorry for that. Point number three, we're going to consider now walking by the Spirit with respect to relating to those who are burdened. With respect to relating to those who are burdened. We're going to be putting our eyes now on verse 2 of chapter 6. How do we relate to people who are burdened, who are struggling? Paul says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. That word that's translated, so fulfill the law of Christ, could also be translated, so fulfill the command of Christ, the commands of Jesus. And we ought to immediately, like, ding, 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 like the light bulbs are going off, and I'm going to John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, where Jesus says to His disciples, last night He would be with them on earth, a new command I give you. What does He say? A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. That's the same new commandment that the Apostle John, who also wrote the Gospel of John, will pick up on in the letter of 1 John. He picks up on that new commandment that we've been given. It might be slightly reductionistic, but it is still appropriate to say that to... Fulfill the law of Christ is to fulfill and obey that commandment. To love one another as I have loved you. So that's what Paul is pointing us to. To love one another as Christ has loved us. We are to help one another. We are to bear one another's burdens. And the burdens here, I think this needs to be noted, the burdens here are not just hard circumstances and calamities. Burdens can be that. They certainly are. I mean, calamities and hardships and hard circumstances are burdens. So certainly those would be in the scope here. But in the context, we would have to also see burdens to be struggle with sin. Right? Because most of the burdens we bear that are the most heavy, the hardest, they have to do with sin, not circumstance. Circumstances can be really hard. A lot of times we can get beyond that. But what's really horrible is the burden of sin that we all are dealing with. The result of indwelling sin in us. And in this fallen world, friends, we know this. It's full of fallen people. And so we will have plenty of opportunity to bear one another's burdens. Calamity will arise. Hardship will arise. We'll be called to action. 
And people will sin. We strive to not sin, and yet we will sin. And so how do we help the struggling sinner? How do we help, as we sang about this morning, the trembling mourner who is struggling hard with sin? To bear one another's burdens, whether we're talking about calamities or sin, would mean that we have our eyes open to the ways our brothers and sisters are struggling. It means that we would seek to be thoughtful, that we would seek to be helpful spiritually, seek to be helpful emotionally, seek to be helpful practically. We would try to be there in times of pain. We would strive to listen, be slow to speak. We would strive to comfort. We would strive to help process. We would strive to encourage the downtrodden and the weary. We would strive to correct and admonish one another as occasion requires. And brothers and sisters, I want to, I know this has already been done by Joshua and, and to an extent by Ron even in his prayer. But I want to encourage you as your pastor. CBC is far from perfect. Amen, somebody. Perhaps we'll, we'll consider some more on this later. Not our imperfection, but just some of these other great truths. But you, you know well that CBC isn't perfect. I, if anybody in this room thought, oh my gosh, this is just like heaven on earth, I would be surprised, and I also would want to correct that. And I certainly know, Ron certainly knows, I mean, as pastors, we know how imperfect our church is. And at the same time, brothers and sisters, be encouraged. The Lord, by His Spirit, is doing good things in the life of this congregation. He is. And I'm not just talking about the fact that we're bigger than we were a year ago. That's great. But there are more substantial things going on that are of note that we ought to praise God for and give Him glory for. I have been very... I've had a, a busy week. I have not been able to be as hands-on in the help as many of you I haven't even replied to the email threads. But I have been incredibly, personally encouraged as I have looked at some of the things that have happened in our congregation in recent days and weeks. Very. At how people are loving each other. Sacrificing for the good of each other. Rallying around those who are suffering and hurting. It brings me great joy. Great joy. Fewer things bring me more joy than that kind of stuff. And... As I've already said, God gets the credit because you didn't produce that in you and I certainly did not produce that in you. God did that. God is doing that. May He do it all the more. What you're doing. This is very much Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4. What you're doing by God's grace and by His Spirit, do it all the more. Amen. Let's now go, friends, to consider a final point together. As we're going to look now at verses 3 through 5 of chapter 6. And we're still thinking about walking by the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit. So fourthly and lastly, we want to think about a warning that Paul gives to those who think well of themselves. A warning Paul gives to those who think well of themselves. Put your eyes on verse 3. I'm just going to go ahead and read, read each verse and make some comments. Paul says, For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing... He deceives himself. So verse 3 is an indictment against those who are self-righteous. An indictment against those who are proud. They lack compassion and mercy perhaps towards their brothers and sisters. 
These individuals would have an overblown perception of their own wisdom, their own holiness. They don't have self-awareness. Just a little thought about self-awareness. I've talked with people about this some lately. If you were to ask a room of people, who in here thinks that you're pretty self-aware? The people that you would know without doubt are not self-aware would be the hands that go up in the room. Right? Maybe nobody got that. That's fine. If you think, oftentimes, if you think you are very self-aware, you're not. That's the point. We all have blind spots. There are things going on in all of our lives that we need God's Word ultimately to show us, and there are things going on in our lives that we desperately need our brothers and sisters to point out to us. These people, thinking they're something when they're nothing, not only are they deceived, they become conceited, which Paul has told us not to do in verse 26. Let us not become conceited. To think you're something when you're nothing is conceit, right? And it seems in the context as we move even into verse 4, it's very possible, and we know that this is how this works with us, that thinking you're something when you're nothing often happens when you wrongly compare yourself to other people. Your standard is off, right? I'm comparing myself to other sinners and I feel pretty good about myself. It's not what we should do. Put your eyes on verse 4. You can see this. But let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. Keep tracking with Paul, right? That word but at the beginning of the verse could very well be rendered now. It's not so much a contrastive as just to say now let each one test his work. Paul exhorts those who have a high opinion of themselves, don't be deceived and deluded, but honestly assess your own work. Not in light of your neighbor, but in light of objective, perfect reality, namely the standard of God. And in doing that, should you honestly assess your own work and it meet the test, then you would have reason to boast in yourself. So final judgment, those words are future tense, right? Final judgment's in view. He, the reason to boast will be in himself alone, not his neighbor, for each one will have to bear his own load. Let's continue on and track with Paul. Paul makes it clear in verse 5 that each will have to bear his own load. He's talking again of ultimately final judgment there. He's talking about standing before God, and in that sense, we'll stand alone. And our false conclusions about ourselves, that we're something, will find no place in the judgment of God. Right? Our fallenness, the fact that you're fallen, I'm fallen, we're born sinners, we're corrupt, we sin. That reality annihilates any possibility that you bearing your own load ultimately before God could ever be a good thing for you. It could not be. Are there passages in Scripture where we are told to evaluate our own works, to evaluate the fruit in our lives? Yes, this is not one of them. As I understand the text, and we can talk about that. If you disagree with me, I'm always happy to talk about it. I do not understand Paul to be encouraging us. What I don't, let me just put it this way. I am not, in, I'm not understanding Paul to be encouraging us to examine ourselves and then upon finding legitimate grounds to boast in ourselves. It's a word he uses. It's the word that he uses in the text. This is not to glory. This is to boast. The reason I don't understand him to be doing that is because it's in the context of gentleness, a warning against self-righteousness and pride, walking by the Spirit, and I also don't understand him to be encouraging us to examine ourselves and then boast in that 
Because we're told by Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 that let the one who boasts, boast in God. Let him boast in the Lord. The grace of God, the same Apostle Paul wrote Ephesians 2. By grace you have been saved through faith. It's a gift of God that no man may boast. The Lord tells us in Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, Let not the mighty man boast in his might, or the rich man boast in his riches. Let he who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. So this is not Paul talking out of both sides of his mouth, right? This is not like schizophrenia, where he's saying, on the one hand, it's Jesus. Trust Him and boast in Him. On the other hand, it's you. Trust in your works and boast in yourself. It's not what he's saying. In the passages where we are told to examine ourselves, and when we're taught to look for fruit, we're still never told to boast in those. We're still never told to trust in those. The only thing we are ever told to trust, the only person we're ever told to trust in in Scripture is God, and in particular, Jesus, God the Son, made flesh. It's the ground of our confidence. That's the ground of our boasting. Paul is going to say famously in Galatians 6.14, but far be it from me to boast in anything except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So big question. This is an exegetical question. Hermeneutical question for those who have that vocabulary. It's a, how do we interpret the text? Question to ask yourself about verses 3 to 5. If you're wrestling with this. What is Paul exhorting us to in the context of our passage today and even just all of the talk about the fruit of the Spirit, the works of the flesh, walking in the Spirit? What's he exhorting us to? That's a huge, that was a huge question in my mind as I came to wrestle with this and I saw commentators on both sides of this issue. Guys I even respect, right? I mean, they're all over the place. You've got to ask yourself that question. What's Paul exhorting the Galatian Christians to and thereby us? He's exhorting us to not be conceited. He's exhorting us to not be self-righteous or harsh. He's exhorting us to not envy and provoke one another. That's clear. That's verse 526. He's exhorting us to gently restore the one caught in sin, to have a realistic perspective on our own weakness, and to bear one another's burdens. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6. And so then, as I understand the text, and I've laid my exposition out before you, and you judge my exposition. Verses 3 through 5 function as a warning against conceit. Verses 3 through 5 function as a warning against self-righteousness and harshness and provocation. In the body of Christ. As if to say, if you think you're something, you're not. If you think you're something, you're not. Don't be deceived. Don't compare yourself to your neighbor. Examine your own works because that's how you'll be judged. And how's that going to go? When you examine your own works. You'll see good fruit that is Holy Spirit wrought in you. And don't trust in it. Trust Christ alone. Right? That's what it's going to do for you. You're going to be driven to the Savior. You're going to be driven to Jesus to say, yeah, I'm standing in Him. Let's stand in me. It's His work, not mine. It's His merit, not mine. That's the gospel that Paul has been fighting for in this whole letter. I always feel the need to qualify this because I know I make people nervous when I say this stuff sometimes. So... I've already said it, I think, but I just want to be crystal clear. Will conversion 
Regeneration by the Spirit of God produce good fruit in the believer necessarily, yes. I would die for that. The untransformed life is an unregenerate one. Okay? Let's just put that away. And not every passage that encourages examination, I would argue that most passages that give us that kind of law stuff, compare yourself, is a passage meant to drive, uh, drive us excuse me, to Christ, not to any kind of confidence in my own fruit. That's where I'm coming from. I trust you understand that. I want to land the plane, friends, with some more encouragements and some more exhortations to us as a, as a body of believers, to CBC. So as I said earlier, we are far from a perfect church. I was talking to one of our brothers, a member of the congregation, before the service today. We're talking about a book that he's read recently, a book that I'm going to be reading that I trust will be helpful. There will be a useful critique of the church in our context, right? I plan to read it soon. And we were both talking about it. Like, all of those things that are pointed out in this book might not be true of CBC, but CBC is far from perfect, right? We've got to own that. We are far from perfect. We are looking to, trusting, and hoping in the perfect one. That's what we always rejoice in here. And at the same time, just like Paul's posture towards the Thessalonian believers, this is not all or nothing, right? It's not you either do perfect or you fail and fall flat on your face. We can rejoice in the good that's happening. I'm very encouraged, not just by what I've seen this week or this month. I'm encouraged by what I see as a culture that's being built here. I know I can speak for Ron. So we've talked about this. If you were to ask me, what's the church about? What's the church? And don't, I don't mean CBC, but the church. What's it about? Most fundamentally, I think we should answer that question. The church is about Jesus and the people who need him. The church is about Jesus and the people who need him. And I see that kind of culture being built in this congregation. And that brings me joy. That we understand that Jesus is on the one hand, the point of the world, the glory of God through Christ is the point of the universe. We understand that the Bible is about God's plan of redemption accomplished through Jesus. And we gather every Sunday to repent and believe the gospel anew. We gather every Sunday to repent and believe the gospel and participate in the sacraments and to gather with the saints for encouragement and corrections. What we do, all the while looking to Christ, I believe this, as the lead pastor and primary preacher of this church, this church, I pray it would never be the case that it had anything to do with me. This church is about Jesus and not me. It's about Jesus and not Ron. It's about Jesus and not whatever. And that brings me much joy. That you know how much you need Christ. And in one sense, you if, even if I wasn't planning to hold him out to you every Sunday, you would pull it out of me. That's a good thing. I see in this congregation a love for God and a love for his word that's supernatural, right? That's not something that you've produced. I don't care how morally upright you may think you are. You would not desire the word of God and the things of God apart from the spirit of God. Be encouraged. I'm encouraged by the love that I see for one another, the relationships that I see growing. That's wonderful. May it be so all the more. 
So those are things to be encouraged by in terms of the culture that God is building. An exhortation to you and to me. Trust the Holy Spirit. Trust the Holy Spirit. What I mean by that is that it's always much easier to assess a situation, assess a church, and see all of the things that God is not doing rather than to look at a church and see all of the things that He is doing. And I think that posture, especially amongst younger people, is a problem. Especially younger people in our sort of circles, the you know, reformed young crowd, right, so to speak. I mean, I rejoice in the fact that we're not all young reformed people here. I rejoice in the diversity that God is building here. But I'm, this is a special word, I guess, to even those people that would consider themselves that zealous and all about these things, it is so easy for us to criticize. To hurl critique at the church is easy to do. To love her is much harder. To encourage her is much harder. To pull her along is much harder than cracking a whip. Now a whip needs to be cracked every now and then. But more often than not, We're pulling each other and encouraging one another. And so take heart, right? Be encouraged. God the Spirit is working in your lives individually. And God the Holy Spirit is working in our church corporately. And remember that any growth that's happening, whether that's in your life or in the life of this church, is completely the work of God, not you. So trust the Spirit. Like that's... It's a posture that I want for our elders. It's a posture I want for our congregation. Even in how we live together. It's like, okay, let's... Of course there's urgency, heaven and hell hang in the balance. True. And God's got this. Right? Let's trust His Spirit to do good work in the people that He has caused to be born again. We can be patient. I'm okay for this to take... I, I mean... I trust if I have a normal span of life and many of you in this room, we've got a long time. And even if I'm taken home tomorrow, this church has a long time. Let's be patient. Let's trust the Spirit. A couple of other things. I'm drawing this to a close, I promise. Continue to bear with one another. Continue to bear with one another in love, in gentleness, in patience and charity and compassion. Continue to bear one another's burdens, even the ways that you've been doing in the recent days and weeks, months. Imperfectly, but you're really doing it. Praise the Lord, right? And more than anything, friends, continue to point one another to Christ. Continue more than anything to remind each other of the fact that you, that we need Him. Continue to drive one another towards those objective realities, right, of the gospel. They're done. That's the ground of any hope and assurance you have. Same for me. God has saved, in one sense, His people. He will save us. It's over. Trust Christ. Rest in the Spirit. That's what we do. Let's pray.